Okay, here we go. Episode one of The Blade Dive. So stoked you're tuned in. My guest today is Brandon Dodds. That's right. And if you don't know Brandon, you're getting ready to. He's a legend in the Terrain Park game and has spent time within historical programs. He's traveled the world doing so as well. He's a dad, family man, husband, and he treasures his relationships in the industry. He's also learned from his experiences too, and he gets into that. He's a true icon, and he's contributing to things like the Stomping Grounds Project in Sauce Bay. Huge project. He's a Twins fan and a Braves fan, which I respect because I'm a baseball guy, but it's an incredible conversation. If you want to support the channel, which I would love for you to, go ahead and subscribe. Leave us a review because there are more episodes coming. Follow us on social media at The Blade Dive. And for now, especially if you're in the machine, just go ahead and turn the volume up. Okay, we have a legend in the virtual booth today, Brandon Dodds. Welcome to the Blade Dive, man. How are you? Doing pretty good. How are you? I'm great, man. Thanks for asking. I'm actually, I'm thrilled there's no more rain falling out of the sky. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was a good storm. I mean, and don't get me wrong, like I love the water and the rain coming down. It's good for the world, good for the earth, but um, I'm really glad to be drying out. Yeah, we had some rain too, so, and then the... Uh... The fog cloud, the snow-eating fog cloud. Yeah, fortunately, we did not see that thing show up yesterday, but it did rain sideways, so that's always fun. Hey, I, I really want to take just a second and say thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on the show and get real with us and talk about your experiences in the industry, who you are, what you're all about, and um, where you started. And I think Let's go there first. Let's, if you could, paint a picture of growing up as Brandon Dodds. All right. Um, well, yeah, I grew up in Minnesota, just outside of Minneapolis. Um, I got into snowboarding when I was about 12 years old. Uh, my parents got me into skiing, actually, earlier, so I started skiing when I was about six. And, yeah, I made the switch, and it was like 1989 when I started snowboarding. Nice. And, yeah, so... Just loved it. Um, me and my best friend uh, would build park, you know, little parks in the backyard. Typical story. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just that's where it all started. <laughs> that's awesome. So kind of like with a little shovel and a rake and some interest in being creative. Yeah, yeah. Was there a yeah? Yeah, we just you know build little jumps in the backyard. Um, actually, where I grew up. Uh, I grew up on a lake. It's called Lake Minnetonka. It's one of the biggest, famous lakes in Minnesota. Um, but so everyone takes out their docks in the winter because the lake freezes. So we used to take the the sections and we would actually build the ramps kind of out of those because you didn't have a lot. Of, Dude, that's awesome. Well, yeah, because we didn't have a lot of that's snow. So, cool. so we just, we needed a base, you know, so we'd use that. And then uh, pretty much scrape the entire hillside into our runway and our jump and yeah and then we just jump all day no oh, man that's awesome to have that outlet i did you have to ask or did you just did you just take them i, I want to know more no no uh it was fully basically stealing the dock sections we try and put them back of course but um 
No. Try keyword. Yeah, try keyword exactly. But no, we're <laughs> we're little punks, and um, yeah, we we borrow the doc sections to do our thing. And then actually, one of my uh, other really good friends, um, he lived on the lake, and he had a four wheeler with a plow on it. So we would take the four wheeler and build like these gap jumps out on the lake, and then we would tow each other in with the snowmobile. And oh, dude, that's sick. So, yeah, so we'd be hitting these. I mean, it was basically like a BMX dirt double or something, you know, made out of snow on the ice. And then, yeah, we do tow ins with the snowmobiles and we just do it. That is awesome. Yeah, we just do it all day long. Like, we just loved it. That's so sick. Yeah, I'm definitely jealous of that. We didn't, I, I think my, I mean, yeah, I was little small ski resort hill. And then, um, if it snowed in town, we were doing something, but that sounds awesome. Was it a drive? Like, were you, I mean, you were committed to that before even trying to explore a resort or a place to go shred in Minnesota. You were like, yeah, let's go get these docks and build a box or uh, we can do with it. I mean, for the most part, but like, just because that was the most accessible. Um, but no, yeah. my, my parents were, they're, they've, they were super into skiing. They actually both switched cool. to snowboarding. So we still snowboard together to this day, which is awesome. And um, no, they, they would always take us, usually our spring break vacation was, we would go, we would all pack in the car and drive to Colorado or we'd drive to Montana and, you know, go to the big resorts. But um, yeah, I'd say, I don't know, I'd say I'd get 10 to 15 days at the little hills in Minnesota. Um, the other thing was, is I grew up playing ice hockey, so it's like religion back there. So um I was always a hockey player and like as I got older and it got more competitive, I'd actually get in trouble for snowboarding because the coach, <laughs> the coach thought it would ruin our legs or whatever, you know? So, so yeah. You're an asset to the team, man. Yeah. Right. So like, oh, dude, I'm sure you were a hard hitter. You're putting people in the glass. They didn't want you going down on the snowboard. <laughs> yeah. I- <laughs> <laughs> so oh that's so cool so yeah so like once we got old enough and had our driver's licenses um like hockey practice was always right after school so we would do hockey practice and then i had a couple buddies that i shredded with and we you know i'd quietly uh get in the car with them and we'd head to the resort and it's all night skiing there so you could ride till 10 p.m and yeah we'd we'd ride until 10 p.m and then yeah do it again I have to ask Joe Maurer and the twins. Are you a twins fan? I am a diehard twins fan. Oh man. So whenever the twins played the Braves and Maurer was, yeah. So, and there was a long stint there where the Braves just sucked and I would not, and it was hard. It was very difficult. Um, but yeah, Maurer's used to always rock them when they came in and played and, uh, yeah, I was never a fan. So yeah. <laughs> well, uh, little secret. Uh, I was a diehard Braves fan too. <laughs> Oh, no I love, way. I love the Braves, dude. Lavin, Maddox, Gant, that whole crew, Justice. McGriff was my boy. Oh, man. McGriff. Oh, dude, I was all about Fred McGriff. Um, maybe that's a that's kind of a good segue into just, you know, when, when people talk about kind of like growing up and um, where they kind of cut their teeth and the interests that maybe they're pursuing now or um, where they wanted to go with their career sometimes they're chronologically describing kind of who they are through their job. Um, what's maybe something else we don't know about Brandon Dodds that describes you the best? 
Uh, the, I'm a father, and that's like the most important thing to me at this point. Um, yeah, I have a four-year-old daughter, and like I just want to be the best I can to her, and it's kind of changed my whole perspective on life, really. That is, I'm in the same boat too. So I'm a dad, five-year-old, um, little girl, and yes, she's definitely changed my life. So that's so cool to hear you say that as well. It's interesting what kids say, first of all. And then it's also funny how you <laughs> yes. react as a parent, because especially when you hear your kid curse for the first time, it's like, whoa, oh, I did not, I did not help you know that word. And it's, it's like, you probably did along the way. Um, oh, 100%. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to apologize for my language right now throughout this podcast because uh, I do have a foul mouth. <laughs> And yes, my daughter just the other day uh, said something fuck. And we were both, my wife and I just looked at her and we we're like, well, we know where she learned that. And uh, we, so we tried to explain to her, like, when you're in our presence, it's okay. But yeah. if you're out and about, like, those are words we don't say. <laughs> I always joke, you know, because I've been building stuff for so long. And uh, I say, she's the greatest thing I've ever built. Ah. <laughs> oh. That's deep. So can I take, I'm going to steal that from you. I'm going to definitely perfect. use that. Yeah. I'm going to use that line from now on. That's so good. Perspective is everything. And I think just to kind of jump back into the, into the building aspect of it, not to jump towards the career too fast, but what was maybe something that, cause you, you mentioned that you went out West and so your family took those trips, but what was the, what was the drive or the decision to kind of go, yeah, I like this shit and I'm going to move with it. I'm going to go forward with it. I'm going to see where I land. Like, how did you get to resort and, and and get that opportunity to either run a rake or get on the sticks in a machine? Was there an equipment background there or, did, or was that all at the, wherever you landed at West? No, that, I mean, my grandparents had a farm, so I've been around tractors and driving tractors since I was little. I used to, you know, they had several acres, so I'd go out there once a week and mow the yard, and just to mow their lawn took like three and a half hours. So I've been mowing the yard for a while, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the, you know, I always had a passion for equipment, and then as far as getting into it, um, now my best friend who I would build the backyard parks with, um, neither of us was an uh, outstanding student, to say the least. So there was really no college there. And um, I was fortunate enough to have the most amazing parents. Like They always told me, do whatever you want that makes you happy. Just don't be a criminal or a, you know, a drug addict, basically. Just, you know. That's great advice. Shout out to your parents on that. That's so cool. So yeah, so we, me and my best friend were just like, you know, we ain't going to college, so we love snowboarding. Like, fuck it, let's move to the mountains. And um, I had come to Lake Tahoe uh, with my parents for they they own a little hardware store, so they had like a it was like a seminar out here. And um, I mean, my dad's super mechanical and always fixing stuff and doing stuff, so I always was around it. So, so yeah, no, he definitely had an influence on it, and. Like I said earlier, like we used to go to Colorado and Montana. So I was pretty much like, I'm going to move to Colorado. Like I just, Colorado was the spot. That's pretty much where everyone from Minnesota ends up. All the pro snowboarders at the time I followed, that's where uh, they lived. I mean, I still follow Chad Otterstrom, but I wanted to move to Colorado because like that's where they went. And um, 
But then I came to Tahoe and it was just the most mind blowing, beautiful place I've ever seen. So when I got back, um, you know, me and my buddy had already been talking about it. Like, should we just move out West and snowboard and see what happens? And um, like I said, we were thinking of Colorado, but I told him, I was like, man, you got to see Lake Tahoe. Like that's the spot. That's where we need to go. And then this is like 95, 96 probably. So it was when snowboarding was getting huge and blowing up and all the videos were coming out. So then we started seeing Lake Tahoe and everything. And it was like, you know, that's the spot. Look at all the snow they get. And um, yeah, so we just decided that it was going to be Lake Tahoe. And we ended up moving out here uh, straight out of high school. I mean, we graduated and I think we we graduated in the middle of June and we were living in Tahoe middle of August. That's a really cool story. So uh, go back, let's go back to like the digs. How did you work that? Was that like a cosign thing from the parents? Did you have to come up with more cash? Did you have to like, um, I don't know. So we finally found a, a guy that was willing to rent to us and we got into an apartment and um, I, I want to say we had already gotten jobs at the ski resort as lift attendants and we were constantly every day was, can we take our ride break? We want to go ride the park. And about February, probably uh, most of the park kids got fired just because they were all partying and stuff. And so that the boss came to me and my buddy and we're like, so uh, we need park staff and uh, you guys are doing really good in lifts. Um, what do you think about going, switching over and going to the park? All you want to do is ride the park anyways. So you guys want to switch over? And we were just like, hell yeah. You know, when do we start? You know, when's our first day? And then the end of the season that year, it was like, it was like 1997. It was that gigantic El Nino year. So Tahoe just had ridiculous amounts of snow. And the cat drivers were like, all right, you guys want to start learning how to run these things? We were like, oh yeah. Like, let us at it, you know? Let's talk about the training aspect of it real quick. Was that just kind of a, hey, follow around maybe this one guy that's experienced and then we'll cut you loose? Or were they just going, hey, go push on this pile of snow for a little bit, maybe this whale that you've got to flatten out for us? Or was there ride-alongs? What does that process look like for you? So the guy that took over the park program, he came from the grooming department. So he was adamant about us uh, running with the pack. We had to, so we had to groom with the pack for, I want to say three weeks um, before we were allowed to start doing park work. I am so grateful that that happened because I learned so much in those three weeks on just how to run the machine, how to groom, you know, how to run patterns, how to do all that stuff. And yeah, so that was the deal. We had to, uh, do the three weeks with the groomers and like, you know, be successful and actually get, figure out what we were doing. We had a couple guys that we ended up hiring that had a lot of experience. So like I had one guy named Tracy Hare, who's uh, just like my, he was my idol back then. Like I wanted to do everything that guy did in the cat. He was amazing. And um, yeah, we just like ride along with him whenever we could and take pointers. He would ride along with us and give us pointers and, yeah, it just kind of uh, one thing led to another. Very cool. Uh, so back to the following the pack around in the fleet. Uh, I I did not come from that. I came from 
here's an opportunity in an opening. You don't have any equipment background. We're going to take a chance on you. You ran a rake last year. Don't break anything. But I was also managed by some very, very, very diligent individuals that set me up for success as long as I could retain the information that they were giving to me. It's not like they were telling me everything, but they were at least not holding my hand tight enough to where I could fail a little bit and and grow. So, man, I just I view that as such a massive asset to your skill set because if you uh, I'm a big advocate for that. If you're given the opportunity, I think that's really good. So to anybody that's listening right now, um, that would be interesting to know too. Like, where was your background? Did you come straight from the rake or did you come straight? Did you have the opportunity to work uh, in, in Alpine or following the fleet around? I just, when you can understand and know the machine and, and then when you're put in a situation when you're in tight places and that's so cool that you see that as a value. I think oftentimes more so than not, I run into people that are going, oh, you know, yeah, I'm just a park guy. You know, I you know, figured it out. No big deal. Didn't have any training or, um, oh. yeah, I've got a, I didn't need, I didn't need to be with the Alpine guys because they don't know what they're doing. And it's like, mm, I disagree with you there because if you can understand the machine, then you can put the machine anywhere. Exactly. And that was, you know, that was his biggest thing was he just wanted us, the, our boss, he just wanted us confident in the machine because he knew we were going to be in tight places um backing in and out of trees you know setting rails so he was like i want you guys so comfortable with the machine that you're not focused on the machine you're focused on the work you're doing you know because the first as when you're learning like the first few weeks like i mean you literally have to think like okay what's this button do oh yeah that's what that button does you know until it just becomes second nature which takes a couple of weeks of just doing it. Um, yeah, you just don't have that comfort level. And and I see it a lot now too, because I've been doing a lot of training and you know, they just want to get right in there and get in the park. And it's like, yeah, but you should go run with the pack. Like, why don't you do a season of grooming and then come over to the park? You know, you'll be a way better operator if you start that way. Uh, I, I think that there's got to be a point in time where you had somebody that you took under your wing to share the knowledge, or if you're not doing that, how are you sharing the knowledge now that you have from your past experiences coming up? Oh yeah. I mean, I've had tons of guys that I've taken under my wing and you know, I, I owe that all to the guys that took me under their wing. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's about passing on the knowledge and, uh, keeping the product good. Uh, I can't even, tell you how many free hours I put in I would any chance I had to go and ride along with somebody or watch what somebody was doing I was there like I wanted to see it I wanted to be there I wanted to just get that experience so like it's just I guess my I guess the advice would be um yeah just do whatever it takes you don't don't be self-righteous about it like it, nobody's going to give it to you. The only way you're going to get it is if you go after it. Who, who are you riding along with? Um, maybe beyond heavenly, or do you still, even, I mean, I, you've got to pay attention to current trends and things that are happening in the industry now, but back then, who are you paying attention to? Who are you going? Oh man, it'd be sweet to ride along with them. Be sweet to have a chat with them. Who is that person? Oh, well, this guy, Tracy, that Tracy still, yeah, who is my mentor, and then there's he's still in the game. Uh, Tyson Terpenine from Sierra Tahoe. Yeah, uh, he was another dude I looked up to a lot. So, um, you know, I 
had some friends that worked at Sierra. So I would go over there too. Like on my nights off, I'd just go hang out with their park guys and ride around and check out and see what Tyson was doing, you know, see how he was building stuff. And then pretty early on, uh, we started doing a snowboard camp for Jimmy Holopoff. Uh, it was called South Shore Soldiers. And he brought in Frank Wells. So, and Frank was, I mean, he still is. He was huge. So, like, the second I found out Frank was coming, it was like, I am going to watch everything that dude does. I am going to ride in the cat with him. I'm going to ask him every question I can. Like, he was probably so annoyed. Like, who is this kid, you know? But Can you say that again, Frank? I'm recording it. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? That oh, he was annoyed? Yeah, like Frank, I have another question for you. Can you can you just say that again? Oh, dude, yeah, like say that again. Like, or you know, by this point, like I was figuring out the machine, so I kind of knew it. You know what I would do and how I would do it. So I would watch what he would do, and like, oh shit, that makes so much sense. Why he just did that? Like, okay, you know, hey Frank, why'd you do that? You know, and then he'd explain it to me. Like, okay, cool, 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 you know? And, yeah, so, and then later on, too, like, I mean, still to this day, I ride with people and want to see what people are doing. Like, I train Charles, and Hold on a whenever I'm hanging Whoa, out with them, let's I'm back watching that. Say that again one more time. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm considered Charles Beckinsale's mentor. Fantastic. That's awesome, man. That's so cool. So, yeah, he was one of the dudes I took under my wing he was probably the first dude I took under my wing, honestly. And, um, but yeah, but like, so still like, I mean, he's so freaking good in the cat. Like now when we're doing these projects together, like if I have some downtime or the cat breaks or whatever, and I'm riding with him, I'm watching what he's doing, you know, even though 90% of what he's doing, we do the same exact way. So I did want to touch on relationships between, cause you know, when you're, whether you're traveling around to build a project or you are, on home turf, there are interdepartment relationships that you kind of have to manage, maybe repair, uh, be a part of and around because it's not necessarily all about the park, but the park is definitely building some key stuff. Um, sometimes terrain park programs get a little different treatment than Alpine programs. Um, did you ever experience or run into anybody that really just kind of stood up for the park on the, on the Alpine side? And said, yo, those guys are building some cool shit. Just leave them alone. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I've been around so long. I've <laughs> I've seen some uh disgruntled not disgruntled, but some animosity between the Alpine and the and the park crews. And you know, one guy that really stands out is Alex Highslop. Uh he was at Squaw Valley. Um, but there was a lot of animosity back back in the day there. And Alex is one of the first dudes to stand up for us, you know. He would say no like these guys are legitimate they're what they're doing is cool what they're doing is professional like they take their job seriously so we should take them seriously and uh thank you alex because it was always cool that you had our back did you ever want did you ever see yourself taking on more of a manager role instead of a builder role or was that kind of an afterthought and you maybe wanted to explore the manager piece and just see how it was um was that ever a thought? Hey, I'm I'm stoked on running the cat. Would like to run my own program. Yeah, I did. Um, so yeah, back to your you know the question about if I wanted to advance and yeah, I wanted to be a park manager. And um, there was a resort in Idaho, uh, Tamarack Resort, and the mountain manager that got me and my buddy 
transferred into the train parks, he took the role as the mountain manager at Tamarack right from the ground up. I mean, he was there and I was there actually in the fall, but we were there before they even had opened. Um, so I, he offered me the park manager position up there. So I ended up going up to Tamarack and I was there for three years. And then, uh, then I came back and back to my best friend, uh, he ended up moving on to be the park manager at Squaw. So when we decided we wanted to come back to Tahoe, um, I had an easy in and I just went right into Squaw and, uh, became his grooming manager. Um, and then, so I was at Squaw for three years and then I ended up going back to Heavenly for two years, uh, just because I was living in South Lake and commuting and it just got to be too much. So, uh, that's why I ended up going back to, back to Heavenly, um, but yeah, but so so then I was at Heavenly for two more seasons, and then I went back to Squaw, and I was at Squaw for uh, nine years. Uh, yeah, up until last spring. What was your What was maybe one of your biggest takeaways besides the photo shoot aspect of it and being, you know, job title wise, the grooming manager supervisor there? Uh, <laughs> just learning how dangerous the mountains can be. <laughs> Period. <laughs> yeah, I've never. I've never been there either. Is it? Yeah. So just heavy, heavy snow cycles. Like I was going to say, maybe elaborate. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen snow like they get at Squaw Valley. It's, it's crazy. So, I mean, my, my very first night there, uh, they give me a beacon and I'm like, what's this for? No, it's in case your snowcat gets buried. No shit. Yeah. I'm like, no shit. Like, are you serious? Cause I'm from heavenly. They, I don't think they ever use bombs. Yeah. And um, yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. You'll see when we go up the mountain, they have a special route. They space out in case the cat in front of them gets buried or the cat behind them gets buried. And yeah, it was uh, it was an eye opener. That's for sure. Dude, at that point in time, you're probably drawing back to like your doc rebel days of snowboarding going like, OK, I got I got this. I'm not scared of this job, even though I have a beacon in my snow cat. They just said, here, here you go. Yeah. No, I was intimidated, man. I was intimidated. It was a whole Dude, new world. That's heavy. Wait. OK, so let's back that up a little bit. Let's unpack that. They gave you a beacon and said, here you go. This is in case your snow cat gets buried. Yeah. Um was there an interest in maybe exploring the avalanche training after that? I think I would have been like, okay, uh, sign me up. How many days a week is it? I'll make it work. Let's just figure out how I can get certified and official with this thing. Did you do that at all? I don't know what uh, I would have done. So it, I mean, definitely, definitely got interested. Um, cool. I never did like an official avalanche course, though. I, I still need to because I go in the backcountry a lot. But um, no, they, the ski patrollers would come and kind of do uh, classes with us. That's so, rad. So yeah, so it's pretty cool. So they would come and you know they would teach us how to uh, find beacons, how to probe, how to you know set a um, a pattern, you know. So yeah, so definitely got some training, but it was all from just the ski patrollers at Squaw, which is awesome, and because they all know what what they're doing. Yeah, no, that's incredible. Okay, so and that kind of loops back into another question too, because you've got this opportunity that's fantastic at a resort that sees so much snow. And didn't they? They hosted the Olympics in like the '60s, didn't they? Yeah, nineteen sixty. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Um, so at least I knew that. I've never ridden there. Um, <laughs> but so you, you've got this situation where you're having to manage a beacon when you go out, and I, you've got all this snow that's coming through. It's definitely different different than Heavenly. 
was there a point where you kind of reinvented how you explored the mountain? Because I mean, the parks is definitely a piece. It's a footprint. It's an acreage component within the mountain, but to have that type of mountain that you can be around all the time, especially if you're working a graveyard shift um, or maybe you weren't, but if you're working a shift where you can go shred before or shred after, uh, did you reinvent or kind of reinvigorate your passion for just surfing the snow? Oh, big, big time. Yeah. All I wanted, all I wanted to do is jump off cliffs. (laughs) Nice. So yeah, no, we were all about it. And, um, yeah, I was fortunate enough, like a lot of the day staff, uh, park kids, they had been there for years, so they knew every inch of that terrain. So, uh, I had some pretty good guides to follow around. That's so cool. That's awesome. I was definitely intrigued when you, cause uh, I've seen in the past, just like I've always told you, or recently I've told you this too, like you don't, you don't come across as the, the builder, you don't portray that you're the builder dude, the terrain park guy. You, you genuinely portray that yourself as a, as a family man interested in the well being of others, but you're also passionate about snowboarding. And so riding is a key component of who you are. Was there also maybe, cause I've never really, I need to get into some different shapes of boards. Did you have a different crew? Did you stay with your same crew? Was there just kind of a rabbit hole you went down there with squaw, um, with, with riding at all and getting creative outside of the park? Uh, I mean, yeah, like we had the same crew and like you're saying, like, yeah, I started experimenting with different pow boards and, um, yeah, just kind of learning how the, how the snow worked in the big mountains, you know? Um, but yeah, no, it, it was definitely a whole new ball game. Uh, but like as far, yeah, like, so that's the thing with me. Like I've always been so all about the snowboarding, like for the longest time, like if I didn't have a hundred days in a season, I, it was a failure. <laughs> I didn't get it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't get enough days. No, that's uh, great. I'd say I never did that. I definitely was like, okay, I've had enough. But I got to stay, you know, I really, I was obsessed with parks. So it's always awesome to talk to people who are um, vetted and invested in, hey, number of days, different conditions. Let's get out there. Let's do it. And it's got to be harder once you're, how do you continue to do that now, now being a dad? Uh, it's a lot harder. I could tell you that. Ah. Um, yeah, I've, I mean, I just try and snowboard when I can. Uh like I said, I'm I'm pretty into the backcountry, so I have a snowmobile, and um, any chance I get, that's that's where I'm at. I have a really good uh, couple of friends, or a couple actually, uh, so I go out with them all the time. She skis and he snowboards. Cool. Um, but yeah, so anytime I can, I try to get into the backcountry. But no, I mean my my passion was was the parks too. Like, I mean even when I started hand crew, like my goal was to be a sponsored rider. Like I wanted to be a professional snowboarder. Uh, I soon found out that I did not have the talent level. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, you got a dream though. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of why I like, so that passion just kind of went into the terrain parks. Like, well, if I'm not going to be a pro rider, I might as well get pro at this and, you know, stay a part of it. So. I know that there have been several people that have played key roles in maybe keeping you in check, uh, being a bigger inspiration. And I know that you mentioned, we talked a lot about Kingvale um, while we were catching up and uh, Dave Franzen and, and Jay Ridd. And, and it was so cool to hear you talk about how deep the, 
uh, connection goes there between the both of both of them with you? Yeah, yeah. So I worked with both Day and Jay at uh, Heavenly the first time way back. And, you know, it's kind of a shitty situation how it all worked out. But um, so me and Tom, uh, we were promised the park manager position. And basically, we were given the park manager position because our boss had quit. And so they brought us, they just promoted us basically. And this was in, you know, September when we were going back to get the budgets going and get the season going. So we had run the budgets. We had hired the crew. We had started building the rails. Like as far as we knew, we were in charge. We were doing our thing. And next thing you know, we're being introduced today as our new train park manager. And so it just caught us off guard. Um, We were young and full of ego and uh, we didn't receive them well at all. And, you know, I owe a lot to today, especially Um, he's the guy, he really put my ego in check. He, you know, I was, we were out of control. We were talking shit. We were trying to start shit, like just dumb, dumb kids. And day called me in and just sat me down and uh, just, told me you know like you're gonna burn bridges you're never gonna get another job in this industry your ego's out of control like until you learn to check it uh you know you're gonna go nowhere and you know i thought he was full of shit at first you know i didn't take it serious and then i started seeing how my attitude was affecting it and uh, yeah and then i changed my mindset and and thank you day because like that conversation that we had in that office that day meant a lot to me and uh, definitely changed my career path. And then as far as Jay, Jay was brought in kind of as Day's assistant. So we butted heads at first too, but once I had the conversation with Day and chilled out, uh, then I started to accept Jay for who he was. And he was an amazing mentor. I mean, that dude can run a snowcat like no other. And, you know, learned a lot from him on how to move rails and how to build pads and, you know, just general stuff. And then uh, I ended up going on and working with Jay a bunch, doing the snowmaking installation. And um, yeah, I learned a lot from him there too. And like, yeah, those two both, uh, just utmost respect for those guys. That's such a cool story. That's that's awesome that um, you have that experience and it's a good reminder and you appreciate that. And the relationship means more. That's dope. That's awesome. So the stomping grounds and you being a part of that, a pretty much a cornerstone of its operation and a massive contribution to every piece that makes it operate. What that story has a beginning. Um, I want to know more if, if you can elaborate e- even on just your, your take and your experience and, and the team and um, kind of the highs and lows and the excitement. Um, that would be awesome. If you could, if you could let us in on that story. Well, it all started. I mean, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Like I'm sure Charles had, uh had the idea in his head and you know he was kind of doing some training stuff for the national teams already so i'm sure he was getting uh you know kind of feedback and hit up from those guys and the coaches like hey you should put something together and um so yeah so that's i think that's kind of how he like got the idea as far as myself um it was when i was still working at parisher and we had Charles and I had kind of been talking. And I had definitely been bugging Charles, like, you know, like we need to partner up, dude. We need to do something. Like we need to start our own business or something and do something. And uh, 
And then he came to me and said, so this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? Should we, or I want to go to Sasfe. I found a place uh, in Switzerland on a glacier where we can do a training camp. What do you think? You know, you think it would be successful. And it was, and it was in October. So it was like the perfect time because there's nothing going on that time of year. And uh, I was just like, I think it's perfect, man. Like you already have the people that back you, like put something together for them, you know, give them a product. And so, yeah. As, and then as far as like the product on the hill, like we were just getting feedback from all the riders, mainly Charles, cause he knows all those guys so well um, on kind of what they saw as the new trend in, you know, competition, slope style competitions and stuff. And this is when all the kind of the transition hits had started coming out and, um, you know, kind of different style stuff. And uh, we had been experimenting with it a little bit uh, at Parisher with like the mile high courses because um, we were working a lot with Torstein on kind of the layouts on those. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of how like the idea for what we were building came about. And then, so the first year we didn't even have the half pipe, uh, but then there was so much feedback for the half pipe that that's kind of how, how that came into play. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. What else? Yeah, I mean, I think those are, those are already great points of, of the story. Maybe how did it evolve from year one to year what it is now, year almost five? It sounds like there was some, and uh, obviously there was a location things move forward with the idea of what could be offered. And then inevitably things got easier, maybe because you had already established a footprint. Um, so how did it become more seamless? That would probably be a better way to put it. Cause the idea well, is just awesome. Yeah, it was pretty, I mean, honestly, it was pretty seamless from the beginning because they have a summer park there. Mm. So those big piles are, they're in place. And what's really crazy like that, that place is just mind blowing. Like it's the craziest force of mother nature, that whole area. Um, but the glacier's moving obviously. So those jumps actually are sliding down the hill. So every year, basically the first jump that becomes the second jump and the the second jump just kind of goes down the hill and it becomes our, usually our, our finishing feature, which is usually like a quarter pipe at the bottom or some type of a hip or something we'll build usually. Um, so yeah. So like the snow is pretty well established just because they have the summer park there. Um, and we, and you know, we get to work off of that footprint, which is huge. I mean, we do it in 10 days. I, I want to say the first two years we did it in eight. And then the last two years we've done it, we allow ourselves 10 days. Um, but yeah, but it's, you know, it's a fairly straightforward build just because the, the the jump piles are pretty well established already. So all, all we usually have to do is maybe widen them out a little bit. Um, maybe, you know, steepen up the landing if we have to, but uh, you know, maybe sometimes we'll stack it, maybe a blade stack just to kind of raise the knuckle and, and, you know, get a little steeper on the landing. Um, but like the quarter pipe jumps, those are usually built from scratch. Uh, like, cause we'll build those a, above the two jumps that are already there. So like that's like the main the main brunt of the work there is the quarter pipe jumps and then the rail line at the top. Like we completely redo the rail line and and get in that. 
Um, and then Jeremy, Jeremy's the one who's got his work cut out from him because he goes, he's there for like 30 days. I mean, he goes the beginning of September and he first he has to dig the pipe out because it gets completely buried, you know, it gets filled in throughout the winter. And then he'll have to stack the walls and do whatever he needs to do to get it back to height. And then, you know, then do a step process and, and cut. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's pretty straightforward, really. I mean, it's a, it's a huge project and a lot of work. I mean, we put in a lot of long nights, but, um, yeah, it's pretty straightforward as far as like everything there being established. Uh, the craziest thing is like, you're just, you're on the glacier. So, I mean, every night we're opening up crevasses where literally you'll be, you'll have the biggest pile of snow in your push road you're pushing and it just literally falls out in front of you, like just disappears into the glacier. Now that would be, that would be crazy. So, wow. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy. And then like, they've taught us now how, how you damn it basically. So like we, we've figured out you make, you just, chunk off giant chunks of ice basically through the glacier and you just create like a dam and then you have to you build bridges over the dams Mm. so like throughout the whole build and throughout the whole camp (laughs) we feel like all we're doing is chasing holes yeah is it i mean would you would you declare it as probably your most difficult project that you've been a part of today or no uh, yeah, yeah. It's the most difficult, challenging just because of mother nature. I mean, the winds up there and the snowfalls we get sometimes and, uh, just the glacier itself. Like it's, it's crazy. I mean, you could, it sounds stupid, but like you could literally die up there if you took the wrong step. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the management piece of all those different assets that are working up there. Cause you've got half pipe jumps uh, additional features like rails, quarter pipes for finishing features. And then their construction, it's not like you're going, Hey, let's, okay, we got our snow. Okay. We're going to build the features. It's okay. Who's working? What shift? How many crevasses do we have to fill tonight? Uh, you know, where do we get our fuel? Um, do we have any, what are the safety protocols for this type of incident? I mean, there's so much to manage there that Uh I think, I think that that in itself speaks volumes to not only the effort, but the product offering that is final for everybody to see. Cause you don't see, and that's the, that's the beauty in talking about all the stuff that we're talking about. It's the behind the scenes stuff that you don't see. You see the finished product as the participant, but a hundred percent. Like they actually did a video, like Shredbots put it out and stuff. Um, but it, they did like a behind the scenes video a couple years ago, an amazing video uh, by Finn Finnegan Laver. Nice. And, um, that's one of the key parts of it is he asks us, he's like, you know, uh, what, you know, the riders don't see. And it's like, yeah, because they're not up here when we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because we're up there. I mean, shit, sometimes we're up there from 2 p. We usually go in at 2 p.m. So they close at 2. So we'll, we start around 2.30 once the hill's clear. And I mean, most nights we try to be down by 12, 1 o'clock. Um, but there's many nights that we've slept up there because like you that's what's crazy too is you only have there's two trams and a train like through the mountain uh cog train that you have to take so either we go down with the groomers at like midnight or sometimes even earlier um which usually doesn't fit into our schedule Mm -hmm. or uh charles has to foot the bill for 
us to go down privately. So a lot of nights, if we're working till two, three in the morning, like we'll just say, screw it. And we'll sleep up there. Cause like, it's just, it gets too expensive for Charles to have to pay for all that stuff, you know? Yeah. And that is another behind the scenes aspect of it as well, too. I mean, you're, it's, uh, what, how can I put this? You take for granted how easy it is to come and park your machine in the yard, right? And plug it up and go to the, however your transportation is happening from the shop to wherever your car is, or maybe even your car is parked at the shop and you just go home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a, it's a 45 minute, half an hour, 45 minute one way just to get up and get down. Wow. So, and then, and then you add in on the whole top of it, we're foreigners and we don't speak their language. So, you know, like the communication can get pretty funky as well. Have you picked up any or no? A donka, Sean. (laughs) No idea what that was. Is that hello? I love you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. See, there you go. But that's about it. No, I have not picked up German. So, wow. Uh, Jeremy, actually, Jeremy, Jeremy's getting pretty good at it because he's he spent his winters in locks. Mm. So he's he's Jeremy's kind of been our buffer the last couple of years. And Jeremy's yeah. Jeremy's just a good dude like that too. Like he's just like the best mediator, anyways. Yeah, I the only you know the only time that I ran into Carpenter was at uh, Snow Basin with when he and uh colombo where uh i think building or doing something with the due to our course up there such a nice guy oh yeah 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 jeremy's the man dude he's he's such a good dude so much such, respect for that guy such a nice guy um yeah i, I just that project in itself is uh, wrapping your head around that because you know you do i mean we talked about a lot of projects that you've been a part of with double pipe and peace park and x games and you know some of the forum aid stuff that you've done and um, the larger jumps at Squaw that you've built, and those are difficult, yeah, for sure. And there are elements involved, absolutely. But when you're in a country that you don't speak the language, when your transportation is 45 minutes one way, <laughs> when you're confined or constrained to somebody else's schedule for when you leave, and then ultimately you're responsible for any private transportation fees, that's intense. That's so yeah. intense. No, and like you just, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head, like. Yeah, not not that every other project I did was easy, you know, like they're all difficult in their own sense. But yeah, just the logistics and like what goes into that park is insane. And like props to Charles because like he he makes it all happen. You know, it's his business. He's the one that's the driving force. And like he puts the bill for all this stuff. He pays us very well. Um, Like, yeah, props to Charles for keeping it going and, you know, Thank you to all the national teams and riders that support us too. Cause yeah, it's, it's a massive, massive effort to build that park. Yeah, it is. And just hearing the stories right there about how you not only provide the product, but do it in 10 days. That is, and, and everybody shows up to just destroy it, shred it. I mean, the footage that's come out of that place is a lot. Of, I'm sure a lot of, um, uh, never ever's or never done before's have, have happened there. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Zoom. So yeah. Like that's one of the coolest parts for me is like after the build and the camp starts, I'll usually, cause I'm usually just there for the build. Um, and then I, but I'll stay a few days just so I can, you know, go up and check out the action. 
but the highlight for me is yeah it's it's standing on the start deck at once the riders are there and listening because you hear that you know like i'm gonna try this like i got it you know and it's yeah it's never been done or their first you know chime doing it and like just the hype factor like everybody's stoked like the smiles on people's faces is insane do you have a, a favorite moment there maybe it's not the riders and then seeing that maybe it's the building aspect of it uh no not necessarily i mean i guess the favorite moment would just be like just the whole thing like the camaraderie and you know, we always usually do a big like family team dinner, you know, once the build's done and that's always amazing. And uh, yeah, oh, I mean, just, just the whole thing. Like, I mean, not to take away from anything else I've ever done, but like that is the highlight of my career probably has been being a part of that. You just took the question away from me. I was going to ask if if this and being a part of it, it is the culmination of everything you've done in the past and is the highlight of your career. It absolutely is. And like, I mean, just the fact that it's with Charles, he's like a brother to me. I mean, like, you know, like, yeah, it's just, I don't know. The whole thing is just sick. Like, it's amazing. It's like, I was devastated when I couldn't go this year. It was so heartbreaking. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a bitch. Cause like, the world is fucked and like my little issue is nothing compared to what's going on in the world. But uh, yeah, it was like heartbreaking that I couldn't go and, and help him out with it. Yeah, no, I mean, when you're, when you've been a part of something from the beginning and you can't participate in it because of something beyond your control, I think you're allowed to be upset. <laughs> right on, I, think, cool. I think that's fair. <laughs> I mean, variables that you could not control, no levers you could pull. Yeah, no, man, I respect that for sure. So I want to circle back to the uh, parenting thing and being a dad. And I want to, I want to kind of dub this bring your kid to work day only because just from my experience and anybody else that's had to, uh, had the question posed to them, but my little girl often asks me when she comes to work in the past, not in this year with COVID, she's not been up there, but last year she definitely hit me up with, Hey dad, why? why am I not seeing other female operators? Where are the women? And it's, I got to admit, as a dad, I didn't expect that question. It's its a little awkward, but it's real. And I think that's why it's awkward feeling to me because I want to deal with it and I want to be transparent with her. And I've, I've pointed to several examples of women um, operators, female operators, because I know they're out there and they've been in my career and they've been incredible people who have made an impact on me and I've appreciated that. So I just want to know, Brandon, if you have had a female leader out there in your career that has made an impact on you in any way, shape, or form. Jess Ricciatelli, she is a huge influence in my career. She was my boss at Squaw uh, for the past nine years. And I mean, she, yeah, probably the best boss I've ever had. I mean, she, she was awesome. She could do just you know, she'd get right in there, do anything. She was a welder. Um, yeah, badass. Just a badass. I mean, we we talked every day, all day. I mean, it was, you know, we we'd get sh- I'd get shit from my wife. She'd get shit from her boyfriend. Like, you guys talking to each other again? Like, fuck. Like, how much work do you have? It's like, dude, we fucking love what we're doing. We want to put out the best product. Like, we're we're stoked on this, you know. And 
yeah yeah like the communication was yeah it was key and it was huge the trust that we had with each other was incredible like i trusted her and what she was doing on you know the management side of it and the behind the scenes side of it and she fully trusted me on the hill to put out a park and you know we we both had the same vision of where i wanted to go um and we just had the trust in each other to let, allow each other to do our jobs there was I mean, obviously I wasn't micromanaging her because she was my boss, but she never micromanaged me. I mean, she had full faith in what I was doing and how I was doing it. And I can't thank her enough for that. That is awesome that Jess had an impact on you. I think that's so cool and that you recognize it and can speak to it. I, I just think there are some bright shining stars out there that have made an impact in the world and in the industry mainly that we're talking about that are either at the operator level or the manager level and they're just incredible people man and I want I want them to come on the show I want them to share their stories but if nothing else I just want this platform to help the industry realize that in this world that is so fucked up right now with politics and COVID and gender and race that we as an industry grow inclusively together instead of exclusively. Yeah, I agree. Well said. Thanks, man. And I, I just, I'm stoked you're willing to, to talk about it too. I think right now though would be before we get too far along because I've definitely lost track of time. Um, let's let's go ahead and jump into and introduce the push road question of the day. The push road question of the day. And there you have it. Our our little girl wanted to be involved in the podcast, and I couldn't say no. And so I caved. Of course I did. My heart melts for that little girl. So, yes, she is 100% involved and a part of the podcast. I was going to say, please tell me that's your daughter. Yeah, that, yeah it was, was awesome. awesome. I, I was stoked she wanted to be a part of it. So the push road question of the day is an opportunity for our listeners to send in questions to the guests. And it's a super cool opportunity. Obviously, this show is pre-recorded. So we're in the virtual booth right now, and when you send in your questions, they'll be queued up for myself and the guest that's going to be on the show next to take a look at, which is so cool. And there have already been a shit ton of questions that have been submitted, so I would ask for your patience. If if we don't get to your question on this episode or the next one, we will try to get to it eventually. Um, so please don't be discouraged. There's also opportunities for me out there to, to introduce those questions on social media. So just please bear with us as we launch the push road question of the day. Now, you can send us your questions on social media via at The Blade Dive on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also jump on our website, thebladedive.com, and send those in. And if you've ever been in the push road, it's a bit of a think tank. You've got time to think. And so it's a perfect opportunity to ask the guests on the show questions that they might be asking themselves. So, Brandon, today's question comes from no one other than Mr. Charles Beckinsale himself. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought that, was, that was awesome. So big shout out to Charles for contributing, man. Hope you're doing well. Um, and so it's a two-parter. And his first question is, Brandon, what was your favorite resort or project that you have been a part of within your 
career? Uh, I'm going to have to say stomping grounds in South Fair. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, a little bit of favoritism there. I get it. I would too. I mean, that's <laughs> that's definitely an amazing opportunity. And yeah, an amazing project. yeah. So I don't blame you for saying um, the stomping grounds. I would too. And it's a two-parter. So uh, Charles also wants to know, he asked, Brandon, tell us why you are so hyped on Holy Bully Features in the terrain park. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so uh I believe that Holy Bully features in the terrain parks, public parks is the worst trend in snowboarding right now. <laughs> Not, the worst trend in terrain parks. <laughs> oh man. Well, thank you for taking it there, Brandon. Yeah. And, and and I want to clarify. Um it's <laughs> It's just for the fact that they're impossible to maintain. They look cool for a day and they shoot well. And then they just go to crap because they're so hard to maintain. And um, it's not that I have anything against the Holy Bully because I think the Holy Bully is one of the sickest events in snowboarding. Uh, But it's built in three weeks with excavators and massive hand crews and maintained with massive hand crews. So like it just, I just don't think it works in the public terrain park. So you're saying that when you have to back up 1,000 times to groom a maybe 100 foot yard uh, squared run, you're not happy to do that? That's not fun. Yeah, I'm not into that. I'm not. I'm not into that. <laughs> Football field long, holy bully feature, 1,000 backups. Brandon's on board. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, I mean, the machines like they're not even made to really groom that stuff. Like that's why it's all done with hands and excavators. And that's why it uh, like loses its shape and looks like crap after a couple of days. Cause like the machines just can't conform to it. I totally think that building and maintaining something like that is an art and it is not, it is a patient skill material. I feel like it's a very calculated effort. You've got to get everybody on board. And when you can do that, Damn, that's that is that is art. You're literally taking a paintbrush to a canvas at that point. And I am not that operator. Um, if you were to say, "Hey, Parker, go build that," I would not be stoked either. But to those who can, right? I think I think that's our message. To those who can, I mean, our hats off to you. Exactly, more power to you. And like, I mean, it is art. Like that's what I think is so cool about the real event. Like when you look at that finished product, like there's nothing that looks cooler than that. Yeah, no, there is definitely not. Um, definitely not anything cooler than that. Brandon, thanks so much for participating in the push road question of the day. I think uh, Charles will be stoked on the answers for sure. <laughs> right on. Thanks, Charles. The push road question of the day. So I'm I'm curious there too with your experience in Perisher because. You've obviously been around multiple snow types. You've obviously been around different projects. You've been around different people. You're, so you're, you're stacked going into Perisher. Yeah. Is that a correct? Yeah. Like like we, haven't, we haven't even talked about Perisher. Perisher was yeah. a huge part of my career. Uh, yeah. And like you're, you've got all this data, right? You got all this information that you have. How do I run this machine? And how do I run that machine? I can run a wench. I can run... Uh, an excavator. I can do this, that, and the other. 
and then you're going down to Perisher, and then it's that's a different animal from what I expected. I was four years in, and it was like, here you go, have fun with this. You're like buried in experience and going, hey, man, what's up? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, for any like up-and-coming operator, like if you want to get your eyes open, go work in Australia because you get, yeah, five seasons worth of snow conditions in two weeks. So it's so crazy down there. Um, But yeah, I went into it, you know, I was well along in my career, but when I went down there, so I had lots of experience, but uh, yeah, every night was different. Every night was a challenge. Um, But yeah, it was, it was awesome. Parashare was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Like I have so many good friends from there. I have such good memories. I'd still be going. If it wasn't for my daughter, I would still be going every summer. Like that's how much I love it down there. And like, I mean, Charles and I and Dougie too, huge shouts to Dougie Graham. Uh, yeah, like we, we had a pretty special thing there and uh, made that place go off for several years. And, you know, it was always cool for me to come back to the States and, you know, that's all people wanted to talk to me about was, oh my God, what, look what you guys did at Perisher. Like it was so Dude. sick. It wasn't just sick, man. It was like, that was progression in itself. I mean, dude, like I'm, I'm super proud of it. Like we had the entire world, like that's where they wanted to go in August. The entire snowboard world wanted to be at Perisher in August, you know? And like, yeah, like back to the photo shoots, like we did some pretty cool shit there too, as, as far as like some shred bot shoots, uh, an Armada shoot, um, the mile high events, like that was always cool. Like, yeah, that's, that's a special place, man. I, I, I really like that place. Yeah. And oh man, just the, so the making snow thing was always amazing to me. It was mind blowing to me. Oh, what? Marginal temps. (laughs) Oh, well, not only that, but you've got, so I'm coming from the V bubble. I mean, there, there, we've got such a small snowmaking system and the lap from June mountain down from the pump house for those people that know, like, I remember just, oh, those were some experiences making. That's a whole other story, but the that was awesome. The the lap to check the pump and then the air compressor was like 45 minutes to get from top to bottom, where the pump house was, check all the guns, and then down to the bottom, maybe longer. But if you're in the machine at Threadbow and you're in the park and you're going, oh, yeah, that gun's a little wet, you can radio in, you know, at the time, you know, this is 2011, 2010, you can radio into the snowmaking uh, team and go, hey, can you uh, dry this gun up a little bit? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then, sure as shit, there it would be. It would be like, oh, that's perfect. Leave it there. <laughs> you didn't even have to get out of your cat. Yeah. It was, oh, we, so... used to, we used to call it like, hey, the wind's blowing it onto this one. Can you just point it uphill a little bit? Oh, yeah, no problem, mate. You know, and they yeah. turn it and like hands down to those snowmakers. Those are the hardest oh. working motherfuckers I've ever been around is yep. snowmakers in Australia. Those dudes yep. kick ass. Yeah, they do. Like, no doubt about it. They're the hardest and they, working. They're so good at what they do, too, because they know the mountain. Yeah. And it's not, and it's not like, and well, when I was there, they tenured people in, in that department. Oh, tenured, tenured and, like, I mean, those dudes are doing the same thing we were doing in the cats. They were chasing snow, you know, chasing northern, southern hemisphere just to make snow. You know, like they knew what they were doing. 
I know that your experience was definitely different just being at a different resort and having more experience on your resume and under your belt. But I Yeah, no, it, it was huge. And like I mean, I did four years down there and uh at one point I was on snow and in a snowcat for twenty two or twenty three months in a row. So that's heavy. So, and that is a question I want to ask because I thought I knew that, but I wasn't sure if it was a full three hundred and sixty five days. It was yeah, it was almost two years. <laughs> okay, so how did you okay, so how did you decompress after that? Or did you not? Did you just go to uh, did you go to Bali after the last time you were in? I did. I did. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, but no, so I always joke about it. I fucking hate summer. Mm. I think summer sucks. So like if I could be in a snow cat and be in winter all year, I would. I'd take maybe a three week vacation every year to go to the beach, but otherwise I would be fully content and happy in winter all year long in a snow cat. Listening to baseball. I mean, yeah. Listening to baseball podcasts, you know, death metal, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, yeah. Like I love it. Like I wish that this was like a true year round job. I wish it was in a, in a cat. Yeah. Gosh, that would be, that would be a dream, man. So, but okay. So back to Australia really quick though, with, I know 360, you went to Bali. So that's fantastic. I didn't get to go to Bali. Um, I think I came and rode the park, uh, once or twice while I was there, but it was just a different vibe. I felt like I was at Mammoth main park chairs right there. You know, you're on the front. That's uh, a pretty, I was insane. It was like intimidating. Like I would, you know, cause I was still shredding quite a bit then and riding parks and like it was so intimidating to go ride those parks because of the dudes and girls that were in there riding it. Yeah. So can I tell you a funny story about Australia? Tell me. So uh, I originally was going to go down there and work at Threadbow because that's where Charles was still working. And so what year was this? Oh, 2014, I guess. Okay. And uh, so... I was, it was probably middle of May, end of May. Like I was getting ready to pretty much pack up and go down there. And Charles calls me and he says, uh, I'm, I just made the switch to Perisher. Um, they offered me, you know, a good package and, and I'm going to make the move over there. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to be able to work with you at Threadbow. And like the only reason I, the only reason I was going there was because of Charles. I mean, he had been bugging. He had been bugging me for years, like, come to come to Australia, come to Australia. And I was doing the snowmaking gig at the time, installing snowmaking and running an excavator, and I really liked it. So I was like, no, dude, like, I, I'm good. You know, I like this gig. And finally, I got burnt out on that. So I was like, all right, Charles, I'm, I'm ready. Let's do it. You know, will you get me a job? And so he got me a job at Threadbow. Uh, I went through the whole visa process. You know, I had already got my visa issued. Um, yeah, it was ready to go, locked in. And he calls me like end of May to tell me that he's going to Perisher and that we're not going to work together. Oh. And I was bummed. I was just like, dude, like, well, I, I'm not coming. Like, I don't want to go work there unless, um, you know, like that was the only reason I was coming down there. Like, I'll just go do snowmaking again. Yeah. And uh, he's like, no, 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 no. Let, I'll get back to you. <laughs> so, so he ends up getting with hey, Perry. You're not here to work with me. Oh, I'm out. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. So, but then he's like, no, 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 just, just bear with me. Hold on, hold on. I'll get back to you. So like a week later, he calls me and he's like, Parisher wants to hire you. Uh, we're going to get you a visa. We're going to do everything we can, but it's going to be kind of a process. So, um, you know, you're just, you're already booked to come down here. Just come down here. You can stay with me, blah, 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 you know, until we get it figured out. 
So I went down there on Threadbow's visa. Like I got into the country on Threadbow's work visa. Ended up going to Charles's house. I didn't tell Threadbow I was there yet. I told him, I don't even know what I told him. I just beat around the bush. <laughs> went to Charles's house, stayed with him and Amy for like two weeks while I'm blowing off Threadbow. Like, oh no, I'll be there next week. You know, yeah, sorry, I can't make it yet. <laughs> and then Parisher gets the visa in place. So then I had to call Threadbow and tell him like, yo, uh, I'm not coming to Threadbow. They're like, what do you mean? <laughs> Like, yeah, uh, I'm going to Paris here with Charles. And they were so pissed. Like the mountain manager, I'll never forget that phone call. He was, he said, so you're not coming here? And I was like, no, no. And he's like, did that fucking Charles Beckinsale put you up to this? <laughs> and I like didn't even know what to say. I was just like, uh, he is my one of my best friends, and yes, like that's why I came here to work. Uh, I'm sorry it didn't work out. Uh, maybe I'll see you around. Oh man! Did you- and the rest was history. I went to Parisher and worked there. Oh, did did you see anybody at Threadbow after that? Uh, so I did. I ended up going over there because I was uh, pretty good friends with Tristan, um, and he worked over there. So I went over there to shred with him one day. And he got me a VIP pass from the same mountain manager that I had that conversation with. And this wasn't the first year, though. I think this was the next season. So, like, you know, a year had gone by that it cooled off a little bit. Um, But, yeah, I went in and actually met the dude and shook his hand and apologized. And he gave me a pass. And I think we even ended up having beers afterwards. But, yeah, it ended up all good. But it was uh, definitely uh funny how it all worked out man that is awesome i um (laughs) i don't know if i would have had the courage to go back there and say hey i know man i know that i wasn't there for you last year can i have a vip pass all right well yeah fly on the wall when that conversation was going down from tristan hey you know that guy i think tristan yeah like lined it i i think tristan lined it up so it was like you know, I don't even know if he knew who was getting the VIP, but then I had to go in there to get it with Tristan. And it was like, oh, wait a minute. You're who? Yeah. Like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, shoot. So anybody who's listening, if you really um, if you really have to bail, just come clean eventually. <laughs> uh, come, come clean first. I wouldn't suggest doing it how I did it. But. Oh, man, that's heavy. Oh, it's so heavy. So past projects that just I know about are Double Pipe, Peace Park, X Games, you know, some random builds for the Forum 8 guys. Um, they're probably not random. They definitely meant something. Uh, and then were, I'd be, were you ever a part of doing anything with Cube Pipe at Squaw? Those are just rattled off a bunch there. No, I wasn't in on, this, on the Cube Pipe. Uh, that was actually the years I went back to Heavenly. Oh, man. So, um, but no, I mean, I've done, you know, all the way back to Heavenly. We did um, Snowboarder Mag. We got the cover of Snowboarder Mag back in 1999. Uh, like I had mentioned earlier, um, we ran a snowboard camp called South Shore Soldiers. Yeah. Uh, that was put on by Jimmy Holopoff. And he was another dude that, like, I idolized because he was from South Lake. So when we got there, like, he was the dude. And I'll never forget the day I got the call from him saying he wanted us to build his camp was just like jaw dropping. Like, wow. Like this isn't Jimmy Holopoff. Like who the fuck is this? 
<laughs> you know, um, I'm hanging up and I'm calling this number back. And if you don't answer, you better yeah. put Jimmy on the phone. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and then, you know, just being in the scene, like, uh, I got to know a couple of the Mac dog guys, one of the filmers and one of the photographers, um, Ian Reuter and Nathan Yant, who are still two huge inspirations. Um, so we got to work with them a lot and do Mac dog shoots. Um, uh, and then once, yeah, it's squaw, like the first round we, we were doing all the forum stuff. Uh, we did a lot of Burton stuff. Uh, we did the one season we did the trans world, uh, buyer's guide. So like they shot the whole mag basically at squaw and we just switched stuff up for them. Uh, bunch of ski companies. I'm not much of a skier. I apologize to all the skiers. Uh, but yeah, we did like we've worked with Rage Films, Matchstick, Level One. Um, so yeah, and then the last round at Squaw, uh, yeah, we did Peace Park. We had Miss Super Park. We did the Trans World Team Shootout. Uh, we had Oakley there, and then I was a part of the Mountain Movers Television Show. Uh, that oh, nice! Yeah, SBT had so we did that there. You were actually on. You were actually on camera, and they talked to you about, "Hey, what are you doing running the snowcat? Tell us about that." Well, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was kind of uh, like it was Squaw versus Alpine, so it was like oh, no. a, like a team thing. Um, cool. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, we all got camera time, and yeah, it was it was funny. It was an experience, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's rad, though. So no, it was cool. It was really cool. And then, um, yeah, what else? Uh, we had the Peace Park there. It was the first year that Peace Park was like actually a park because the first year it was at north star it was just peace pipe um so the first like peace park concept was we did at squaw and then i was fortunate enough uh yeah spt brought me to x games and i did that one season and i was a part of the second uh red bull double fight and then uh the stomping grounds i mean that i've been a part of that since the beginning and uh yeah, so I've I've done a few. Yeah, and here's maybe a I'm I'm interested in your response here. With I mean, your team had to be massive at Squaw. How big was your team? First of all, the the park crew there. Oh, geez. Uh, well, we had nine operators, I believe. So there was nine groomers just on the budget. Um, and then I want to say there was like twenty five or twenty hand staff. Nice. That, that was budgeted. It's huge. Okay, so and then here's the here's the the big question. With that many things that you've done in the past, that many events, that many photo shoots, um, maybe not necessarily all at the same resort, but when it was at Squaw and you had something that big happen, how did you battle not seeing the public park if it was open offering decline? Uh, that was always a battle. Um you know, a lot of the stuff was late in the spring, so the public park at that point was dwindling down. Um, but no, that was just kind of like, uh, you know, we'd have to put the faith in the, in the other guys and the less experienced groomers, you know, that was when they got their chance to, you know, groom the big jumps and like, actually, yeah, get, get a little more hands on. Nice. So, but that was always a challenge and the public, the public were our biggest haters because, you know, they always, why are you building all that cool stuff and then not letting us hit it? Cause yeah. half, half of the public at squaw was, they could have hit it, you know? 
Yeah, every every place has their customer, and sometimes you can't make everybody happy. And I, that's the one thing I've always been interested in is that yes, it's it's so cool, and it's definitely worth the marketing dollars to be able to promote things and do things and make things awesome, progress the sport, and move things forward. But what is that balancing act? I mean, we talked a lot about it tonight. But what does that balancing act look like for the public offering? How do you manage that as a team? Uh, do you put your other guys in there that can groom that that type of terrain and give them an opportunity and you know, and then if it does, if it isn't, a, if it's not groomed to the Brandon Dodd standard, then how does the public respond? I've just, man, that's always a challenge. Yeah, yeah, it was a challenge, and we definitely heard about it. Um, but yeah, I was just putting the faith in the other guys. Um, you know, I maybe have to do a few extra hours to help out. Um, one thing we did do though, a lot that was pretty cool was if the photo shoot was early enough, and usually squad was open late, so usually. Yeah, like the photo shoot would happen and we'd still be open for a few weeks. Um, but then what we would do is like the big jumps, we would we would tone them down. Not really tone them down. We'd just kind of fill in the back so they weren't uh, full cutout cheese wedges, you know. Um, and then we'd let the public have them. So like that was always kind of the thing was like, all right, you guys, like I know you're, you're bummed that we built all this stuff and the public parks, you know, taking a little hit. But in two weeks, we're going to reopen these to public and you guys can hit them for the rest of the spring. That's a pretty good deal. So, yeah, and it seemed to stoke people out. So that was kind of one way of navigating it. Yeah, that's a pretty good deal. We, um, that, that's great. Uh, so you mentioned SPT and some of the things you've done there. And uh, during your travels, I think we, we chatted earlier, and I think one of the coolest things, this is just me personally, I think, but I think one of the coolest opportunities you had was to be there, kind of like their start park guy or their small park guy um, and advocate for the construction of that and maybe train some folks. So this is kind of a two-parter. Did you ever, like if you were going to a resort, did you ever have any pushback for the people that were maybe with you at resort to build the small stuff? Were they ever resistant? Um, I just, when you got somebody coming in and it's free help, it's like, come on, man, <laughs> show oh. me, teach me. I, I do, man, I may not be motivated right now to build this small stuff, but you're here and I'm stoked that I'm not doing it by myself. I mean, that's where I would be at. Well, um, then you'd be the 1%. <laughs> I would the 1%? What? I don't think I've wow. ever, I don't think I've ever felt welcome at a resort oh, that I've gone to consult at. Like it's always. Really? You're always like, what the hell is he doing here? We can do that job. Unreal. That is just unreal. So, yeah, I would say that's 99% of the time. That's the vibe. If you've got help, man, that is, that's huge. That's so, it's so beneficiary to your mental status. I I mean, so I'm really, I'm really the 1%. I would be stoked. I would have a beer waiting for you, Brandon. Yeah. I would have, um, I wish, man. (laughs) If you weren't a, if you weren't a beer drinker, I would have a hot chocolate waiting for you. You know, if the boss told me you were coming in, I'd be like, "Here you go. Okay, let's go do this together." Yeah, yeah let's no, go. <laughs> no, I've never. It's never the outsiders in my experience have never been well received. And I mean, I was that dickhead back then too. Like I was the guy looking at the SPT guys, like, "Why the hell are you here?" You know, until I figured out the benefit of it and. You know, yeah, they can help you out. Like, here, you go do this. I'll do this, you know? And then it goes it goes back to the learning aspect yeah. again, too. Because, like, once you put your ego aside and you realize, like, 
these are some of the best dudes in the business. Like I'm going to watch what they're doing. I want to see what they're doing, you know? Yeah. But no, yeah. uh, yeah, most of the time you're not very well received. <laughs> wow. I, man, I'm super ignorant then. And probably some people <laughs> call me, call me out in the comments for that. What do you mean? You didn't know that. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, when you can get help shit, when it's, I don't, I'm all about it. Um, I'm all about it. Um, I think when I started out, it was definitely, a, I can do anything and I can, I can get through it and I can figure it out. I might have to ask for help. Um, but I, I think it was probably, I've, I've, maybe I'm thinking this way now because I never encountered, uh, a guest coming in to help. That's probably what maybe I, I would attribute it to that. I can okay. think that. I can think that way because I never really had anybody come in and, and do that. And so, uh, or, or never participated in a resort that, that, that went down. And so, and I mean, uh, you've, you've, you've been at some, I mean, man, dude, you've been at like the top level terrain park resorts too, you know, I mean, mammoth and copper and uh bachelor, like, I mean, you guys are pretty well established, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, you know, I think there were, there were some successes and failures on my part at any points along that path, which, and I had fabulous people around me, but the, I would really attribute it to that. I think, um, I think there was one instance and I'd love to get Scott Cherry on the show. Scott Cherry, if you're listening, you need to get on the show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, I remember when, uh, Torstein wanted to bring in Beckinsale to, to build this jump at copper. And, you know, I don't blame him, but I wanted Torstein to believe in Cherry. And the coolest thing ever was that Torstein gave Cherry a shot. And that was so damn cool. Um, but I think that's may- the reason I was even maybe even able to, to stand up to that and kind of speak to Scott's skill set was I just I was OK with somebody coming in and, and, and building something. But I just it's kind of like the you know, the three strike, the three strikes and you're out with rent. <laughs> yeah. you, you, get, you get a shot. And if it's, if it's not worth it, I think what you're taking away from it is the failure to a understand what your skill set is currently. Cause I'll never claim to be the best operator in the world. That's maybe why I love building the little stuff, but, <laughs> um, but I also know how fun it is to push shit tons of snow and stack a massive landing. But when you can give somebody an opportunity, I think that's, yeah. that's just so cool. <laughs> well, and I mean, it's, you just had the right attitude about it. Like it, you know, like I didn't at first, it took me a while to get that attitude. And like, yeah, once you realize that it, uh, it is help and it is beneficial and it, you know, it's, it's all good. Yeah. Did you, I mean, did you enjoy going to build the the small stuff? i secretly, I would have, but oh, I did. I did. I mean, to me, it's all the same. Like without the small stuff, there isn't big stuff. Cause if you're not, if you're not bringing those people up and um, yeah, growing the sport, the big stuff's going to go away because nobody's going to be able to hit it. Yeah. And then the second part of that is like, I mean, I'm smart enough to know who makes the money ski school. So like you keep ski school happy and you keep those customers in there. The mountain manager is going to be happy and they're going to support your terrain park as a whole. So like, yeah, it's, the small stuff is just as important as the big stuff, if not more. Ah, oh, okay. So to everybody out there that's listening right now, 
if you're the if you're the individual that's building the small stuff, you are an asset. One hundred percent. And to all those guys that think they're insulted because they're building the small stuff, it is ten times harder to build the small stuff than it is the big stuff, because it's way harder to get your cat to do what you want on the small stuff than on a big giant platform where the cat's like full width. You know what I mean? And you have nice push roads and whatever. You know. That's. Like when you don't lock your tail around a small piece of snow and then it looks like a mushroom instead of a roller, like something like that. (laughs) Exactly. Like you want to get good with your blade, build some small shit. What's maybe your biggest, what's okay. So on the lines of that, you're uh, well, maybe not biggest, but what's a failure you've had building that you've definitely learned from and taken away. It could be anything, whether it's the business point of view or the construction point of view, what was the aha moment that you had? Like, ah, damn, I'll do that differently next time, but it, it rides right now. Ah, oh, I mean, <laughs> that's a deep one. That's a deep blade dive right there. Yeah, exactly. I'd say just that blade diving. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man. I, I mean, the first several years we were in the cat, I mean, fuck, every night was a lesson learned. So, you know, we, I think me and my friend Tom is my best friend who I got into it with. And I think me and Tom spent more time with the shovels than we did with the freaking cat at first because we couldn't do it with the cat. So, it's like just figuring it out. And then as far as like lessons learned, it'd be what we were just talking about. Like I was one of those guys. I thought the small shit was stupid. And, you know, why do we need that? And, you know, this is what kids want to ride is the medium and large stuff. And like until I saw the whole picture, like, yeah, like that was a, definitely an aha moment. Like, oh, you know, like this is all part of the business. Like this needs to be here to make this successful. Yeah, and I never really have understood why there seems to be a gravitation towards assuming that building the small stuff is worthless if you're a park operator. Um, I, I never, I've never understood that. When you take on the pers- the the perspective of oh, I don't like this because it's not the photo shoot jump or the uh, the big park. Exactly. I mean, dude, it goes to the baseball. Chicks dig the long ball, right? <laughs> they totally do. The home run. They don't like the bunters. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, like all the glories and the big stuff that's getting shot, you know, and getting social media and in the mags and in the videos, you know, nobody's putting beginner parks in the magazines and on social media. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so true. That's so true. Well, maybe unless you're the pinch hitter that comes in and wins the game with a sacrifice bunt from a runner on third, and you're the Yankees. That might, that might, you're wearing pinstripes. Yeah. But, yeah. You might get some uh, heroics there, but yeah, you just might get some. But I think if you're wearing a Braves uniform and you're doing that, that's not happening. Um, no, or twins. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I just, I've always been blown away by that. And, um, Anybody who's ever asked, I've said the same thing now. It's just, look, it's super important to understand that on the grand scheme of things, these features are super important. And if we can get to get to the point to where you're uh, comfortable on those, then, yeah, we'll start moving towards something that's larger. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And honestly, like, I mean, I almost feel it's like a, not a disservice, but like, it would be easier for the it would be easier for the rookies to maintain the bigger stuff because it's e- like I was saying, it's easier to put the cat on it. It's easier to get the cat to do what you want. Cause you have flatter surfaces, wider surfaces, but on the bigger stuff, there's no margin for error mm. because that's when you start hurting people. 
Yep. Where the small stuff, you have that little bit of margin for error. So if there's little bumps in it or whatever, you know, like you can get away with it. But like, I almost feel like you're, you're handicapping the rookie operators because it is so much harder to do the small stuff. And that's kind of where they start, you know, that's kind of just the progression. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's kind of funny, that one. <laughs> Yeah, or I was gonna say, Orgrim, what do you? Yeah, that was you just took the question. What do you feel like the biggest piece of progression was that was kind of the clicking and your the aha moment again with uh, grooming? Was it that fleet and following around piece that you talked about earlier, or was there a moment in parks that you were just kind of going, "Oh yeah, that's it." Uh, I mean, yeah, the grooming in the pack for sure. Like that was a huge yeah. eye opener. Um, and then as far as building, like it was learning the machine, like learning how to keep your machine flat how to keep you know how to how to get the most out of your machine because that's what it's all about like the machine is just your tool like you know it doesn't like the machine's not just going to build it for you you know what i mean like you need to know how to use that tool properly and Mm -hmm. and once you figure out the machine and how it reacts to different snow conditions and you know something as simple as push roads you know, like, yeah. oh, okay, that's why you have a push road because you can keep all your snow in the road. You can carry more snow. And if you keep a flat, you know, you keep your flat surface, you're going to get the most out of the machine. Um, another big one, I guess, and I preach it a lot with the rookies is, uh, I always say, my, my saying is, slow and steady will always win the race. Because if you're slow and steady with that machine, you're getting the torque that it needs. Like you're allowing the machine to do what it does. And if you're just fast and you're going back and forth and you think you're the man because you're so fast, like you're just making a mess. Like, you know, you're not, you're probably not getting the job done faster. You're probably getting it done slower because of the mess you're making and you're not allowing the machine to work how it needs to work. And then, you know, and then you start damaging shit and yeah, it's just a snowball. But. No, that's sound advice. I think that it's always a marathon. It's never a sprint. That's kind of what I've... 100%, 100%. And it's hard to think that way when you have a time deadline, right? When you're on grave, especially. Oh, actually, what's your favorite shift, grave or swing? Swing. I hate grave. Oh, see, I'm the other 1% there where I love grave. I've hated swing always yeah you are uh, you're the you're probably the second person i know that would say that yeah you're like parker you're just weird already uh <laughs> but yeah. do, you, do you know uh ben finn he's the pre-noth rep now uh I don't, salt lake city i don't think i've met ben okay ben's ben's the man first off um but yeah he's the other guy he's like i love grave i'll take grave all day long like man you're nuts i don't know i just i could never get into the grave and like I mean, I'll work 18 hours, you know? I just don't want to see the sun come up in my snow cat. <laughs> Those are sometimes the best photos, though, man. The cat spotting photos. Uh, true, true. <laughs> Check out my sunrise. Uh, yeah, uh, but you got to make sure you park the cat and then walk 100 yards back and take the photo. The hard parked photo? <laughs> oh, man. You want to talk? That's That should have been my question from Ben Finn, is I always... Uh, make fun of that too i'm like dude how many of you people have just ruined a spectacular photo with that stupid snowcat in it (laughs) maybe that could be your push road question of the day so why is it that everybody feels like or you feel like you need to park your snowcat and take your picture with a snowcat and way of the sunrise why is that (laughs) yeah we're always 
it's like our ongoing joke on Instagram. It's yeah, it's that. Like, where's your? It's either with my photos, they're always like, "Where's your snowcat?" And with their photos, I'm like, "Nice snowcat." Yeah. Um, man, I think we could talk about yeah. that one for days. I love the hard park photos. Those are so fun. Um, I want to know what Brandon Dodds thinks about the future of operating equipment, snowcats in in the ski industry. Oh, absolutely, and like. I mean, I just see it getting better and better because there's more uh, cat operators that are getting, you know, working for the snowcat companies. So they're more uh, receptive to the feedback from the operators. Um, they actually understand what you're saying. It's not like you're telling them, oh, yeah, I felt this, this and this, or you should try this, this and this. And they're just like, oh, yeah, OK, I'll pass it on to the engineers. You know, they've actually experienced it. So they're like, oh, yeah, okay, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. We'll talk about it in the next engineering meeting or whatever, you know. Um, so, like, I just see I see the machines, yeah, just getting more and more operator friendly and better because uh, they're evolving with the operators. Simple things like the the Park Pro, you know, with the cutting edge on the back of the blade. Like, that's huge. It makes such a difference, you know. Um I'm really stoked on all the new winch cats. Like I think it's so rad that they're making winch cats basically for parks now, you know, you have the same implements on it and you can make your sharper knuckles and, you know, get the height out of the blade, height out of the tiller that you need to back up and uh, till stuff or cut stuff, whatever you need to do, you know, like it's huge. The training piece with um, each manufacturer that's out there, that's got either online or, someone who's dedicated to exposing either people who have already been in machines for years or, uh, are, are new. I think that's cool. Uh, I really do. I know that I do. Yeah, I do too. I haven't checked it out much. Um, but I agree. I think it's a, it's a cool aspect and it's just another, another door that's open and another opportunity for people to learn, you know? Uh, it was actually part of Squaw's thing. Like they, signed them up for the pro academy and like they were stoked on it like they thought it was super cool like they thought it was a cool opportunity that they could do that you know and these guys are fresh like they were green but um they they thought the digital part was really cool and you know it's just a another learning piece for them and that and that goes back to like what i was saying earlier like that's what's so cool is because you got guys like jay who have come from this and then they were working for the company to help develop it. Like they're, they're listening, you know, they're literally listening to what you have to say. They know what you're saying. They understand it. And yeah, I just think it's huge. Like same with Ben Finn, like he's at Prenoth now and it's the same thing. He's an operator first. So like, and now he's helping develop cats. So like he, he just, he gets it, you know, he can relay that information and like, and you see it in the equipment because of the advancements they're taking. Yeah. And the coolest part about it, I think, is that, that they're right now we're talking about the, the takeaways for anybody that's in this is I mentioned it earlier too, but the relationship piece. You gotta value those relationships. They're so key. Um, whether it's the shop mechanic that you're around all the time, that you maybe need to work on that relationship, um, bond that a little better so that you're in, when you're in a pinch, you can get some tips. Um, whether it's a brand. Uh, whether it's your coworker, there it's all about cohesiveness. And I think the more that 
I can, I can talk about that. I'm not saying that I was perfect at all, but um, I think you're just talking about a whole bunch of great points, Brandon, with the, just from the relationship piece period. Oh yeah. And I mean, it's a small industry and I mean, I'll be the first to say too, like, yeah, I've definitely made some enemies, you know, like, um, but yeah, like it's all about, it's a small industry. So it's all about the people, you know, and just, yeah, keeping that bond. Yep. Absolutely. And that's the only thing that's really, I, if people can draw from that. If, if that's, if that's a big component, they draw from this conversation. That's, that's huge. I feel like that's a big W teamwork. I think if you're going to lead, you got to be able to be, um, a simplifier and not a complicator. Yeah. I mean, what's the saying? Like, uh, don't cause problems come with solutions. That's awesome. You know, well, Brandon, man, I think we did it. <laughs> I think we have, uh, I think we just created something super special and I'm excited for people to listen and um, hear this episode of the blade dive. You've covered a lot. You've um, opened up your heart and definitely let people in on who you are and the adventures you've had along the way and who's helped. So um, I'm super grateful and I know everybody else is too. that's listening in. So thank you. Well, thank you, Parker. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I think this, what you're doing here is super cool. And, um, yeah, just it's a cool industry, and I think this is a cool way for everyone to kind of connect. And you know, you always hear the stories of everybody from the outside, but this kind of gives yeah a point of view from their point of view. So it's pretty cool. Okay, wow, what an awesome episode one! Thank you to Brandon Dodds and your time, sir. You are a legend. Thank you also to the listeners, the folks that are tuned in right now. None of this would be possible without you listening, so thank you. It means the world. And if you want to continue to support the channel, go ahead and subscribe. I would love for you to. Leave us a review. It really helps the show out. And follow us on social media, at The Blade Dive, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to send us your push road questions of the day. And if you're taking pictures of your snowcat at sunrise or sunset, tag us with either at the blade dive or the hashtag the blade dive and a quick public service announcement if you are in the machine right now currently don't be a dick fill it up with diesel at the end of your shift